You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. It's Michelle Meow. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Tuesday, September 8th. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. And, aw, so sad. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is not with us today. Yeah, he had some business to take care of, so he says. Hopefully, uh, it's nothing, uh nothing too much because we love John. So he'll be back next Tuesday. Our producer, Fong, is in studio with us. Hello, Fong. Hello, Michelle. How is the second week on this uh, this tough job and being my sidekick here? It's uh, actually pretty good. Yeah. I'm doing well so far, I hope. <laughs> you enjoying it? You having fun? Yeah. That's yeah. the most important thing is having fun. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so it was Labor Day weekend, and uh, hopefully you spent it well, maybe barbecuing, maybe uh, going shopping, all those Labor Day sales. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Shopping, yeah. Uh, walking around with folks, and hanging out, chilling. Yeah. Good, good. See, now I'm a you know different type of person in which every holiday I like to you know, ab- uh, absorb in the meaning of what this holiday is all about. So the la- Labor Day and kind of the celebration of organized unions um, that have been, you know, the backbone for laborers here in America. It's been an, it, it's it absolutely been a, a great question of at one point, like, you know, labor organizations, like I said, were the backbone. And then today it seems like there may be other thoughts or opinions about how, uh, I guess, yeah, how efficient are labor unions today? Um, I don't know if your family comes from, you know, any labor background at all. Um, I don't know much about that um, because of my, well, my relation with my parents where we don't really talk much about these things. So, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. It happens a lot with Asian families, though. Our parents don't mm. give us, you know, the dirty, the raw, the rundown of how horrible life was or how difficult or you know what they went through um but they only tell us you know the the stories they that they think will motivate us to do better (laughs) right um you know and looking back at my family and our history we certainly have a lot of people who are laborers and in the agricultural uh industry so those who you know are out there um picking mushrooms or tomatoes and you know we grew up in the central valley area so without labor organizers and unions a lot of those people People, you know, who are also migrant workers and immig- uh, immigrants would really not have any rights. So mm-hmm. I think that that will be a future show, though. So today, actually, we're going to open up with a great guest who put uh, an extensive, um, I, I would say, an, yes, a book. But I mean, it's more than that. This almost could be the LGBTQ dictionary, the ultimate history book. So I'm very, very excited for our next guest, Lillian Faderman, who has a book out called The Gay Revolution, The Story of the Struggle. And there's there's been so much talk lately about the actual struggle and what's what's included in history today in terms of names, who did what. Uh, and so I think today will be a great uh, you know conversation with Lillian. So Lillian, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Um, I, you know, I, I told Fong, I, I thought that maybe she should give me some time to read the actual book, uh, before I brought you on the show. But I think that if I went through the entire book one, it'll be next year that we'll, we'll get the book you, but, but also too, then it's like, 
I will, I will have, uh, I think that I, I would, I would know too much. And in, in, in an interview process, I think, you know, having some mystery as to what you think is the, the, are the actual struggles is a good thing, don't you think? Absolutely, yes. Um, the book starts, there, you know, it's in different parts. And like I said, it's pretty extensive. It starts with part one, scapegoats. And my guess is the revolution, the gay revolution, you know, started in the 50s. It did. I, I actually start the book with a prologue, and in the prologue, I, I tell the story of this man who um, was a professor at the University of Missouri, and he was loved by his students, and uh, he was in line to become the dean when the present dean retired. This was in 1948, and um, the man who had been his partner was arrested and made to name names of other homosexuals, as very often happened. And this professor, whose name was E.K. Johnston, was hounded out of the university in 1948. And this was happening in universities all over the country in the late 40s and the 50s and even into the 60s. So I start with his story, the story of the witch hunts of homosexuals in uh, college campuses and uh, even high schools and elementary schools, elementary schools, high school teachers, all over the country. And then I bring in a story that happened just a couple of years ago of a woman who had uh, been in the military and uh, she was promoted to general. This was in 2012. And there was a ceremony, promotion ceremony, in which uh, she had to choose two close family members to uh, pin the stars on her epaulets. And one was her father, and the other was her spouse. And her spouse was a woman. And the Department of Defense in 2012 encouraged her to invite her spouse, this was a general Tammy Smith and her spouse, Tracy Hepner, encouraged her to invite her spouse to pin the star on the epaulet and uh, to talk openly to the press about the fact that the general was married to a woman. The Department of Defense said, tell your story. It's a wonderful story. It's a story that needs to be told. And so I asked in the prologue how we got from Professor E.K. Johnston in 19... 19- 48, and the terrible witch hunts around that time of homosexuals, to General Tammy Smith in 2012, and the fact that she was not only promoted to general as an out lesbian, but her partner was there on the stage. And that's, that's what the book is about, how we got from one point to present point. Which seems like I mean, it just seems so fast. It went. It seems like we went from zero to you know a hundred miles per hour. <laughs> you know, it it seems like that, but in fact, it was uh, almost seventy years of hard work by homophile organizations, as they were initially called, and then uh, homosexual organizations, and then gay organizations, and then gay and lesbian organizations, and now LGBTQ organizations. But all of these groups really worked at it for 70 years to bring us the rights that we enjoy and a much improved 
social climate that we enjoy. But it wouldn't have happened, I think, without all of those groups and the hard work they put into this for 70 years. And of course, so many individuals who brought their cases to the courts and glaze over the decades here because as you said you know it really took about 70 years and in the in the 50s you know it, homophobia was ingrained here in this country specifically so deep um i think that you know obviously the government had a lot to do with uh you know public opinion and perceptions of lgbt people i really felt like um the government had drove they it, it drove some of that homophobia such as you know the FBI even going around looking for as you were talking about the witch hunt for gays and you 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 got outed if you worked for you know businesses and if you were even thought to be gay they took you away. Yes, it and it it wasn't just the government; it was absolutely every social institution too. The American Psychiatric Association uh, issued its first uh, manual of mental disorders in 1952, and homosexuality was there in the manual of mental disorders. I, I interviewed um, a number of people who told me these really shocking experiences that, that they had had, uh, families committing them to uh, insane asylums, as they were called in the 1950s, or mental institutions, as they were later called, uh, forcing them to be treated by electroshock therapy. In some of these places, uh, the treatment for homosexuality was even lobotomies. Um, at, at least, families that could afford it could uh, pressure their uh, young adult children into psychotherapy. And I think even gay and lesbian people themselves, and, and certainly transgender people as, as well, and bisexual people would uh, go into psychotherapy themselves if they could afford it to get cured of their homosexuality. And it, it wasn't just the government. It wasn't just the uh, psychiatric profession or the so-called mental health profession. It was also the, uh, the police uh, in, in cities all over the country who would entrap homosexuals or uh, raid our bars, uh, uh, arrest uh, women who uh, are not just hard dressers, which, uh, uh, which women who uh, dressed in a, a totally masculine fashion were, fashion were called, but even women uh, wearing pants and, and tailored shirts if they walked down the street were subject to arrest for masquerading in the 1950s. So it, it was certainly the, the government, but uh, not simply the government. It was all aspects of society. There was practically not a single church that would have stood up for us in the 1950s, except perhaps Unitarians. That was the extent 
as we started to, you know, acknowledge um, some, at the beginning of the revolution, if you will, right, and, and, and some organizing of homosexuals or uh, LGBTQ, at this point we know gay and lesbians, such as Harry Hay and the Medicine Society, um, Daughters of Belitis, you know, and, and those organized groups, one of the first, if you will, can, through your extensive research, we can safely say that that would be, they, they are correct, um, that that's the first of the revolution? There, there were um, actually some attempts to start earlier organizations in the 1920s in Chicago, for instance. Uh, Henry Gerber started a group, but it lasted only a few months, and the police immediately busted it up and arrested people who were active in the group. But in, in 1950, Harry Hay in Los Angeles managed to pull together a few uh, homosexual men and said, we are an oppressed cultural minority. First time anyone had ever used that phrase about LGBTQ people. We are an oppressed cultural minority, and we have to organize around that fact and start to demand some rights. I think that Mattachine couldn't dream of, of demanding the sorts of rights that we have today, but at the very least, they wanted to get rid of sodomy laws. They wanted to stop police entrapment of homosexuals. And that was the beginning, I think, of, of, of the gay rights movement, the gay civil rights and we're 15 minutes into the show, and we have to take a break, and we only got through the 50s. Uh, but Lillian, stay with us, because when we come back, I'd love to get to where we are today. Sure. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't miss your history lesson for today. <laughs> you are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of The Michelle Miao Show. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Miao Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Our guest today is Lillian Faderman. She's the author of Gay Revolution, the story of the struggle. And so right before the break, we talked a little bit about the beginning of the revolution, the gay revolution, uh, Madison Society, Daughters of Belitis. And, and uh, for sake of time, we're going to kind of try to fast forward this. 
um, to let's get into the 60s, Lillian. The 60s were really an incredible time. So, so different from when Harry Hayes started his organization in 1950. There was, first of all, the, uh, the movement for African Americans of the beginning of the 60s, called the Negro Civil Rights. There was the anti-war movement. There was the feminist movement. Uh, there were other groups and demand their rights, such as Chicanos, Native Americans. And then finally, at the end of the decade, people realized we have to speak in the same way. We can't just ask for our rights as homophiles to be doing most of them, some exceptions. But, but young people, these uh, baby boomers who came of age in the 60s, said we have to demand our rights. And of course, the iconic Stonewall Rebellion happened uh, six months before the end of the 1960s in June of uh, 1969, and that led to the founding of militant groups, the Gay Liberation Front and the Gay Activist Alliance. And then um, what we called mainstreaming of these LGBTQ groups, uh, demanding things that I, I came out in thinking about in today's time and a lot of books that are starting to come out uh, and where LGBTQ activists have a real response to the names that we have included in, you know, some of these books and in history and what's being written. I also want to point out, I think, that in the 60s or so, um, you know, even religious leaders and organizers who believe in LGBT rights as human rights are coming out as well. What are your thoughts? Yes, uh, in fact, in San Francisco, the Council on Religion and the Homosexual of this Applied Memorial Church, and uh, some of the ministers at Applied saw that uh, that was okay for church people to fight for black civil rights. Nobody thought of fighting for homosexual civil rights in the churches. Homosexuals really the bottom of Real pariahs in the Council on Religion and the Homosexual called together a number of other uh, church leaders uh, in the Bay Area and said we have to do something about that. We have to start to uh, protect homosexuals, and that's what we did. And that was the beginning of some progressive church 
Absolutely. I also wanted to bring up, you know, even uh, churches like Unitarian churches. Um, and I, I guess what I'm getting also to is you know, if we brought our attention down to LA, and if we talk about someone like Morris Kite, for example, and, and just some of the organizing that that they had done out in LA, maybe that maybe that wasn't the '60s. Maybe that was more of the '70s. It was primarily in the '70s that Morris Kite uh, became a leader in, in Los Angeles organizing. Los Angeles Gay Liberation Fund. Morris Kite was really absolutely brilliant. He, he knew how to get the attention of the press, and he, he did that. Uh, at one point, he uh, announced that gay people were going to take over a little community uh, in California called Alpine, a community of less than 400 people, and said that. 500 people were going to descend on Alpine and uh, put eight people uh, in public office and it would become a mecca for the uh, gay world. And of course, that immediately got attention in the press as the press had just been ignoring uh, gay rights and gay causes before. But Morris I got the press put up and pay attention and disclaimer out there, you know, everyone, we're really just kind of blazing through the gay revolution here. And so by no means, by, you know, omitting a certain name or, or even uh, incidents, are we uh, uh, trying not to talk about it? I mean, Lily and I can talk about the gay revolution for hours and hours and hours, and we would still have more stories to tell. Um, Lily, and I, I wanted to also, you know, you mentioned Stonewall, of course, uh, 69, and what had happened uh, in New York, uh, you know, that really a lot of people in this country, pop culture, have cemented Stonewall as the beginning of our revolution. We went back in the 50s and 60s and, and mentioned some small revolts, but, you know, you, we can safely say that, yes, Stonewall basically was the height, was the igniter of our equal rights movement. I think that what had happened in the 50s and the 60s is that there were all of these small organizations, like in Washington, D.C., for example, Frank Kameny, really did remarkable things. He, he got together a group called Mattachine, Washington, and they, they picketed in 1965, they picketed the White House, they picketed the Department of Defense, they picketed the State Department, they picketed in Hall in Philadelphia, identifying themselves as a homosexual minority and demanding equal rights. But Frank Kameny's group was small. He, he attracted uh, maybe 50, 60 people to his tickets. It, it really took Stonewall, which was influenced by, I think, 
elitist and a number of other small organizations emerged in the 1960s, maybe Stonewall wouldn't have been the beginning of such larger. You know, I want to get into the 70s now, and uh, I have five minutes left. I wish that I could just steal Lillian for a little while. Maybe we should do like a whole week of, of history with Lillian. I think that that would be super cool and fascinating. We'll see if she's up for it. Um, but, you know, I also want to add in the uh, women's rights movement and lots of lesbians through the 70s who absolutely added to that movement. I think that sometimes when we talk about the revolution, um, we don't always uh, include, you know, the, the women freedom fighters into that. Yes, and I, I think that, that the uh, feminist movement was so much lesbian-led, and of course that, that was the secret that the founder of the National Organization of Women, Betty Friedan, wanted to keep the secret until straight women, too, who were allies of lesbians, challenged her to stop her homophobia and support rights for lesbians. But lesbians were in the forefront, often in the closet, but always in the forefront, I think, feminist movement. In the 1970s, though, many lesbians led a kind of parallel revolution with lesbian feminism. They weren't so much demanding civil rights as they were looking to establish a a, a, a separate world for lesbians, and many of them became lesbian separatists. They said that, that they didn't want a piece of the pie, and a civil rights demands a piece of the pie for uh, these minority groups. But lesbian feminists and lesbian separatists were saying they weren't so interested in a piece of the pie. They, uh, the whole pie was rotten. They wanted to throw the whole pie out and start all over, and so they they uh, develop their own lesbian feminist and sometimes lesbian separatist communities. And they develop their uh, their own lesbian feminist culture. That was the start of uh, lesbian feminist music, for instance. Uh, there, there were many uh, women's bookstores that were run by lesbian feminists in the 1970s and in the 80s. Uh, there were uh, many communes that were lesbian separatist Immunes for women to trying to find a whole different way to live that would be uh, non-patriarchal, uh, and they developed uh, a whole other dialogue. It was it was really a parallel evolution I think, for a lot of lesbians in the 1970s. They developed a woman's culture that was unprecedented and mm-hmm. is essentially. We're going to blaze through this and again ask Lillian to come back on the show. But, uh, you know, in the 80s, we focused a lot on uh, HIV AIDS um, and leading up to marriage equality today. And so I have a couple questions for you, Lillian, before we have to let you go. I mean, you know, how obviously the research had to have been extensive. And so did you save a lot of uh, artifacts and things that, and held on to a lot of things throughout, you know, the your lifetime up until day? Or how, how did the research, what was it like for you? I started doing research on uh, LGBT2 matters in the 1970s. I started publishing about, uh, uh, at that time it was called Gay uh, and Lesbian, a lesbian subject. The first book came out in 1981, and that was 
to use all of the materials that I've been gathering for years. I gather more materials. And last question for you. You mentioned mainstream, um, mainstream gays. Uh, I don't know. I always giggle at that. It just sounds sounds funny just maybe because of true blood and you know the mainstreaming of vampires into the human world but it but there's some parallels there i mean you know here we are in 2015 we have marriage equality in all 50 states we're working on the equal uh the equal rights act um there there obviously is a whole lot more work that we need to do which my guess is that you know you'll have a second installment or a third or a fourth of the, the struggle uh, the story of the struggle. Um, but you know, do you, what do you think? Uh, what, how our history then was we weren't even protected as you know human beings. There were sodomy laws, and then here we are today. Do you think that we'll ever lose a piece of of us, the LGBTQ well, community? You know, I, I think that the LGBT community is is diverse. Is any community is diverse. Some of us are interested in in uh, Assimilating, living uh, the way any other American live. Some of us want to maintain a uh, separate culture. Uh, the radical fairies, incidentally, started by Harry Hay after he uh, was kicked out of Mattachine for being uh, too far to the left. Radical fairies still exist. Uh, some of us see ourselves as queer. Some of us see ourselves as and see that as very different from being queer or lesbian. So I think there's this, this, this huge diversity within the community. The only thing that really unifies us is that we have a common enemy, and we've had a common enemy from the beginning. And uh, I think when, when we're attacked, we have to come together as we're presently being attacked by going on in, in Kentucky. We have to fight the battle together. But that's, that's what brings us together, the fact that we have a common enemy. And I think the community has realized that under attack, it's not to be uh, one for all and all for one, or, or we do. Absolutely. Well, Lillian, please come back on the show. I mean, we missed so much, and I, I had so many questions. I also wanted to get into the trans uh, rights movement. We didn't get into that. So you'll come back and, and share more of your I history? I would love to do that. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much. Everyone, go out and get a copy Thank right you. now. It's out there in the book world. You can get it digitally, or you can go to a bookstore. I like the hard copy, uh, just so that I can pass this down to my kids, but it's The Gay Revolution, The Story of the Struggle by Lillian Faderman. Um, go out and get it. You really need to, every every single person needs this in your collection. It's part of our history. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll talk about the education system, teachers, and the LGBTQ community. Don't go away. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for 
almost 20 years and uh, over the past couple of months I just opened up my club Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. It's Michelle Meow. You're listening to the Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday, September 8th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Uh, I <laughs> There's so much in our history, and I know I, I just we kind of glazed through that. But again, we're going to bring Lillian back on the show. And of course, we're, I think we should just do a whole entire week on gay history. We should, we should definitely do that, Fong. <laughs> All right, let's let's move our attention now to education. Our next guest is, uh, of course, an educator himself, uh, but he's best known for helping to establish the nation's first gay straight alliance for students. And that, uh, you know, most people know also uh, Glisten, the Gay, Lesbian and Straight Education Network. So let's welcome Kevin Jennings to the program. Kevin, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me, and I feel honored to come after Lillian Fader. Yeah, it, 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 today is a great show. We um, we have a great producer, Fong, who you know put you guys together. So we're really excited about that. Um, but also, you know, this is a part of our history, the education system. I mean, here in California, we know you know a lot about the the fight for even uh, LGBT teachers, or I should say, lesbian gay teachers um, in in California, the Briggs Initiative. Um, and so speaking to you about establishing organizations that make it safe for not just LGBT students, but also bridging, you know, teachers into that mix. I mean, let's just start off with, because we're talking about history, here we are in 2015. Uh, so much has also changed in the education world, right? Absolutely. Uh, my background is I actually started my teaching career in 1985 um, and had never met, seen, smelled, or been close to an out teacher. 
So when I decided to come out of the school where I taught in Concord, Massachusetts, which is right outside of Boston in 1988, I felt like I was kind of cliff diving. You know, um, I had no role models, no idea um, of the best way to do this. So a few years later, in 1994, I edited a book called One Teacher in Ten, which was the first collection of essays by LGBT teachers. And this year, I've just come out with a all-new third edition of the book called One Teacher in Ten in the New Millennium, which is all-new stories um, updating the original collection from 20 years ago. And what's really interesting is how things have changed and yet haven't. Mm -hmm. um, in 1994, we had trouble finding enough teachers to fill a book, to be honest. And a lot of people use pseudonyms or change the names of their towns or their schools or whatever because it was such a scary time. It's always been hard to be an LGBT teacher because one of the you know, awful stereotypes about LGBT people is supposedly we recruit children or we prey on children. So it's always been especially loaded to be in the teaching profession. Um, I had a feeling when I started working on this book last year that there would be some more encouraging signs. 20 years has passed. And indeed, it was really exciting. There's um, teachers from four different countries, out teachers from places like South Africa and China in the book. Um, and most of the stories are very, very hopeful. Um, and only one teacher in the entire collective felt the need to use a pseudonym, which is very different than 20 years ago. What was interesting to me, though, was something that really surprised me. Three of the most negative stories in the book happen in places that I would call paradises on paper. Uh, and by that, I mean places that have all the right laws and have marriage equality and have all those things you're supposed to have, namely Portland, Oregon, New York City, and the Netherlands. These were all teachers who felt they needed to be closeted or had come out and had their job security threatened. And it was really kind of surprising to me to see that in these places where supposedly everything's okay, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, for Christ's sake, Oregon has an openly bisexual governor, um, yet still we saw LGBT str teachers struggling to hang on to their jobs. So it indicated to me that we still have a lot of work to do. And that leads me then to my next question regarding, you know, religious institutions or organizations with, uh, you know, who are also are a part of the education system. By the way, um, we're seeing more and more and more educators or teachers who are being let go and, and then and then involved in right uh, legal proceedings or, or whatnot for firing uh, educators for coming out as gay or, you know, for example, uh, a Catholic teacher the other day we heard. I mean, more and more of these stories, you know, was let go after their local newspaper had announced that she got married uh, to her her wife. And so I kind of wanted to, you know, get your thoughts on as we, you know, uh, some of these laws are being proposed in terms of religious freedom. How do we apply this, you know, to in the education system? when We have educators who are also Catholic and gay or Christian and gay. Well, I think one of the things I used to always say to my colleagues when I was a teacher, I said, look, I would um, actually do a little, when I do faculty trainings, I do this little poll. I say, okay, uh, raise your hand if you're a teacher. And of course, everybody raises their hand. And then I say, okay, put your hands down. Now, raise your hand if you like every kid you work with. And if people are honest, nobody raises their hand. Because, you know, the reality is kids are human beings like everybody else. And we like some people, we don't like others. And then I say, raise your hand if you think you should serve kids based on whether or not you like them. Mm-hmm. Nobody raises their hand at that point. So, look, this is not a question about what your personal beliefs are about LGBT people. Um, you know, I'm an ardent Democrat. I'm not allowed to say I will not serve Republican children. 
My job is to serve every kid in my classroom, create an environment where they can learn, create an environment where they can achieve their potential, and anything that gets in between a kid achieving their potential um, is something I need to address. So I would argue to these folks who are saying, well, it offends my religion or whatever, I would say that's irrelevant. The fact mm-hmm. is, you're there, you're paid to do a job, and your job is to make sure every kid in your classroom can succeed. And the fact is, we know that LGBT kids are much more likely to be subjected to violence while at school. They're much more likely to skip school because they're afraid to go there because they don't feel safe. They're more likely to drop out. They're more likely to attempt suicide. So it's your job to do something about homophobia because it is stopping some of your children from achieving their potential. And whether you like a kid or whether you approve of a kid's particular religion or political belief system or sexual orientation or gender identity, that's all irrelevant. We're there to teach every kid in our classroom and to treat them all equally and to support all of them in achieving their potential. And frankly, if you can't do that, you should get out of the teaching profession because you've mm-hmm. missed the whole point of the job. Mm-hmm. Michelle Miao, we're speaking with Callison founder Kevin Jennings. He's got a new book out, One Teacher in Ten in the New Millennium, LGBT Educators Speak Out About What's Gotten Better and What Hasn't. And he's also going to be here in the San Francisco area at the San Francisco Public Library on Tuesday, October 6th at 6 o'clock in the evening. We'll post that information up. Um, Kevin, you know, we, we're, we're focusing on the, the what has gotten better, um, but I want to turn our attention to the part, you know, what what hasn't, and I want to include gender identity into that, and also, of course, trans students. Um, I, all these other, several other bills that are popping up that uh, lawmakers are proposing would limit, you know, bathroom access, something as simple as bathroom access for, for some of our students. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure of it that that's included in the book. Yeah, the exciting thing about this book, I'll tell you the truth, when I did the first version of One Teacher in Ten 20 years ago, um, there were no trans teachers in it, and there was only one teacher of color. Over 50% of the contributors to the new version, One Teacher in Ten in the New Millennium, are trans people of color and or from other countries. So it is really a much more diverse and interesting set of stories now, 20 years later, than it was 20 years ago. Um, and I think that some of those moving stories in the book are of trans teachers who, in many cases, have transitioned while still on the job and kept their jobs and are fighting hard to keep their jobs because they know from their own experience, having been trans students, how critical it is that we have role models for trans students, and that's what trans teachers can be. I think it's kind of funny. What is it about civil rights that always seems to come down to bathroom? Uh, you know, you look back at the civil rights, African-American civil rights movement, and it was, we had to have separate colored and white bathrooms. And then when they were trying to pass the Equal Rights Amendment for women in the 1970s, uh, people opposed that because supposedly we were all going to have to use the same bathroom. And then when they had gays in the military, supposedly we couldn't do that because gays would be in the bathroom and looking at the straight guys. Um, you know, I think people need to get over whatever their bathroom phobia is. Uh, if there's one thing we all have to do, there's a great children's book called Everybody Poops. Uh, <laughs> and in fact, everybody does. And everybody needs the ability to do that in peace and to not feel scared while doing it. I know personally as a gay student in the late 70s, I never went to the bathroom at school because I knew I wasn't safe going in there that I would get beaten up. And I know that trans students in particular still face that issue, as do, frankly, in some places, lesbian, gay, and bisexual students. So we're talking about a basic issue here of just basic safety for human beings. Mm -hmm. And I'm amazed there's two political points of view on that. 
I, I, I we're running uh, on time here. Um, I mean, I want to keep you around after the break, but uh, maybe just this question before we break. The, the things that we are doing, right, it appears that more kids feel safer coming out. But I, uh, the other the other side of that coin is that, you know, kids coming out earlier and earlier, if we don't have the right education tools, it can be unsafe for them. Uh, what are your feelings about that? Well, I absolutely think that's true. Sometimes being very visible makes you an easy target to hit. Um, and we still live in a country where over 30 states do not include sexual orientation or gender identity in their anti-bullying laws. In a country where in 29 states you can be fired from your job because of your sexual orientation if you're a teacher. The fact is, I think, the, as they always seem to be, if you ask me, the kids are way ahead of the adults on this. And the system needs to catch up. Mm-hmm. The system as in, uh, I guess, the entire the system. The system, the legal system. Right. Um, we need to make sure that every kid has legal protections. We need to make sure that teachers are trained. Um, the vast majority of teachers have had little to no training on LGBT issues. Uh, we need to make sure our curriculum is inclusive. We did a study when I was at Glisten a few years ago. We found that by looking at U.S. history textbooks, that less than one page in a total of over 12,000 pages of text was devoted to LGBT history in the five most popular U.S. history textbooks used in America. The fact of the matter is our curriculum is behind the times. Basic protections are not in place. Teachers mean well. Nobody goes into it for the money, but they don't have the training and the skills that they need to serve LGBT students. You know, there's still an enormous amount of work that needs to be done. Absolutely. Kevin Jennings, everyone, we are going to ca- uh, take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll continue our discussion regarding the education system here in the United States, what has gotten better and what what hasn't, <laughs> the things we still need to do. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyce came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders.
You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. It's Michelle Meow. You're listening to the Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. On the phone with us is Listen founder Kevin Jennings, who's the author of One Teacher in Ten in the New Millennium. LGBT educators speak out about what's gotten better and what hasn't. I should also mention that uh, One Teacher in Ten in the New Millennium is a third volume of the One Teacher in Ten series um, in which we, you know, Kevin has been compiling stories for, uh, uh, of LGBT educators. And he will be here in the San Francisco area uh, at the San Francisco Public Library on October 6th at six o'clock in the evening. Um, Kevin, you know, we talked about uh, do we introduce you know, trans students here into the conversation um, I want to talk about, you know, just kind of the education part in which you said that even educators need, you know, some some training uh, for themselves. It, it, it's funny because I don't know. I don't I don't know why it's so important for us to have something like sex education, but we don't expand on that. Um, and then when I say sex edu- education, I'm talking about the birds and the bees. <laughs> I think that it's still man- mandatory. It's mandated that kids um, have sex ed, right? Uh, not in much of America. In fact, in much of America, there's either no sex ed or the only sex ed that's allowable is what's called abstinence-only education, where you're to teach the kids that the only acceptable sexual sexual behavior is once you get married. Um, and there's been interesting studies. Listen to the National School Climate Survey every two years and looks at the experiences of LGBT students. And what we have found is in the states where there is abstinence-only or no sex education at all, rates of bullying are higher, rates of violence is higher, rates of dropping out are higher. So clearly, when we refuse to discuss these subjects or we discuss them in ridiculously antiquated ways, we create a hostile climate for LGBT students. And frankly, we're denying them information that can save their lives. Let's let's also now. And I, I want to ask this question because I've got a limited limited amount of time left with you. Um, in you know some because you brought up you know the whole abstinence education part, and there are educators out there who actually use their you know beliefs, their personal beliefs, in in order to carry out their job. And we're seeing you know that there's conflict, obviously, of this with in, in Kentucky and Kim Davis. I can apply that also with. Teachers and educators in the school system, I mean, even, you know, um, the Pledge of Allegiance, for example, and all of that. I mean, how has, uh, you know, the, uh, the education and religion and all of that, how has that changed in the classroom for students today? Well, I think, obviously, there's been enormous progress since the first edition of One Teacher in Ten. Uh, as you mentioned in the intro, I helped create the first case straight alliance in the country in 1988. and now. 27 years later, over half the high schools in America have a gay straight alliance. That's enormous progress. You know, the invisibility, the suffering and silence which people went through in prior generations has you know, largely come to an end. But as I also mentioned earlier, being invisible can also make you a bigger target. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there continues to be violence, there continues to be bullying, there continues to be harassment of LGBT students. So I think what we need to do is to kind of double down and get back to work on this. And I have very, 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 very little patience for any teacher who would let their personal belief system get in the way of meeting the needs of their students. Um, we, you, you go into teaching because you 
care about kids. You want to see kids succeed. Um, and why would you let any personal, political, or religious belief system get in the way of helping every kid in your classroom succeed? If you are the kind of person who would allow that to happen, then I think you chose the wrong profession. Very, very well said. So I mentioned earlier, you'll be here in San Francisco, October 6th at the public library. Um, is there a way for people to sign up or is it, uh, you know, public? Any information? And, and on everybody is welcome. It'll be uh, at the main public library at 6 o'clock and I hope people will come and bring friends who are teachers um, mm -hmm. because um, it can be kind of lonely for LGBT teachers out there sometimes. Like I said earlier, it's a tough profession to be LGBT. Uh, and it's important that everybody know, like we all need to know sometimes, that we're not alone. Kevin's book is also out for sale. Uh, it was out August 25th, so you can get your hands on it now. It's One Teacher in Ten in the New Millennium. LGBT educators speak out about what's gotten better and what hasn't. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Uh, thank you for having me on, and I also applaud your focus on history. I'm working on starting an LGBT history museum in New York, which Lillian Faderman is on the honorary board of. So, oh, that's a wonderful. Uh, when you do your week on LGBT history, I expect to be invited back. Of course. <laughs> you will always be invited back, Kevin. And thank you for all that you have done in our community and, and also in the education world. There was once upon a time in which politicians and lawmakers, you know, fought or resisted LGBT educators, which is crazy, a crazy idea to me. So, Kevin, thank you. Thank you. Take care. Fong, what do you think? She's ready to stop the show. Uh, She's ready to end the show. <laughs> we still I'm got a couple minutes. Um, I like having the music on. <laughs> yeah. You know, our, our uh, intro music, it was wonderful. It was produced by Dennis Cruz. It's also available on GarageBand for anyone who wants to copy the theme music of the show. <laughs> hey, I got no shame in our game. It's just, you know, you got to do what you got to do. But, yeah. um, you know, I think that history is so important and we all always need to continuously talk about it because as much as we want to say that, well, you know, it, it, uh, gay history, um, as it came into the forefront, it was 70, 70 years ago, it still feels very new. It's mm -hmm. still, for a lot of us, we didn't study gay history in class and now it's you know, we have to make sure that it's included, mm -hmm. right, in, in history textbooks. Um, so, so what you're going to get is a lot of people who are going to say, I didn't know who Morris Kite was, right? Yeah. I didn't know who Troy Perry was. I didn't know, um, you know, Phil and Del, uh, Phyllis Lyon or Del mm -hmm. Martin. Mm-hmm. Iconic lesbian. What about feminist. Uh, Bayard Rustin? Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. And mm -hmm. so, so many of these names and, you know, people, <laughs> it's like they did so much work and, and now uh, we're starting to hear much about the work that they did while they were alive and imagine, you know, the work that they did before our time. Mm -hmm. It's so much easier today to be sitting here in front of a mic and telling, you know, stories of LGBT lives. Uh, but it, there was once upon a time when it was illegal for me to be doing this. Yeah, um, I was doing this uh, program and people um, like elders back in um, talked about their experiences back in like 1950. And most of the time they were like, it's even difficult for them to walk uh, on the streets and wearing, for example, masks and clothing when they identify as lesbian or identify as queer mm -hmm. at that time. And um, one of them tell a story about how uh, she at that time identify as she i'm not sure recently how she identifies as um 
that she would be stopped by police and harassed by them or even like ask questions, um, you know, without, you know, getting any warnings or not doing anything wrong. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's pretty interesting that, you know, hearing the history and learning about that. And now we're here today. Right. Right. But we still have more work to do. And that's why, you know, the show must go on. I mean, uh, I will I will say this, at least from a legal standpoint, we still need to pass the Equal Rights Act, which has just been introduced um, to the Senate. And uh, I, you know, there's a lot that we need to talk about there. So thank you so much for joining us here on this Tuesday. So sorry that John Zipper of Commonwealth Club couldn't be with us. I'm sure of it that he would have geeked out today on gay history. Uh, but he'll be back with us next week. Tomorrow we'll be back at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. And for everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com. Have a great, wonderful Tuesday evening. Thanks for listening. You can catch the Michelle Miao Show Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network. 